0: Study this evening will open with prayer, but before we open in prayer, I want to go over a couple of things that I have of, of current interest. Thursday is Thanksgiving, as if anyone here needed to be reminded. And Thanksgiving as a national holiday was first established by Abraham Lincoln in 1863. The concept of setting aside a day of Thanksgiving to God was uh, first established really by the Pilgrims when they settled and arrived at, at Plymouth, as well as the Virginia colony. But it wasn't until uh, 1863 that it was set aside as a national day of Thanksgiving. And I thought you would be interested in hearing Lincoln's Thanksgiving Proclamation. I doubt that it would be, uh, it's not politically correct and probably wouldn't be accepted today. He stated, It is the duty of nations as well as of men to own their dependence upon the overruling power of God, to confess their sins and transgressions in humble sorrow, yet with assured hope that genuine repentance will lead to mercy and pardon, and to recognize the sublime truth announced in the Holy Scriptures and proven by all history that those nations are blessed whose God is the Lord. We know that by his divine law, nations, like individuals, are subjected to punishments and chastisements in this world. May we not justly fear that the awful calamity of civil war, which now desolates the land, may be a punishment inflicted upon us for our presumptuous sins to the needful end of our national reformation as a whole people. We have been the recipients of the choicest bounties of heaven. We have been preserved these many years in peace and prosperity. We have grown in numbers, wealth, and power as no other nation has ever grown. But we have forgotten God. We have forgotten the gracious hand which preserved us in peace and multiplied and enriched and strengthened us. And we have vainly imagined in the deceitfulness of our hearts that all these blessings were produced by some superior wisdom and virtue of our own. Intoxicated with unbroken success, we have become too self-sufficient to feel the necessity of redeeming and preserving grace, too proud to pray to the God that made us. It has seemed to me fit and proper that God should be solemnly, reverently, and gratefully acknowledged, as with one heart and one voice, by the whole American people. I do therefore invite my fellow citizens in every part of the United States, and also those who are at sea and those who are sojourning in foreign lands, to set apart and observe the last Thursday of November as a day of thanksgiving, and praise to our beneficent Father who dwelleth in the heavens. Now, we've come a long way in this country since that proclamation. Now you can't speak the name of God, put up a statue to the Ten Commandments or anything that might smack of indicating that there was a Judeo-Christian heritage in this nation that impacted the foundation of this nation. And every system of thought, as we've been studying to some degree in our study of Genesis, every system of thought has a religious foundation. You cannot make a statement that something is right or something is wrong without presuming some value system, some system of absolutes that necessarily implies some uh, system of absolute values that relates to the eternal purpose of the universe. So everything, therefore... Everything comes out of some sort of religious presupposition. There is no such thing as neutrality. You can't have a neutral education system because every, every system is going to flow out of some thought system and that thought system always goes back to some religious presuppositions. And we have since, in this country, since the early 1960s, been in what has been termed by some historians the post Christian America. And there's really sort of a benchmark date and different historians for different reasons will go to either the year 1860, I mean 1963 or 1964 as the year marking the major shift when the last vestiges of Christian or Puritan influence on America or Judeo-Christian values died. Some of them put it at the Supreme Court ruling that, uh, removed prayer from the public schools. Some put it at the assassination of Kennedy. Others put it at various other things. But there's just seems to be a complex of, of, of things that took place in this nation in 18, I mean 1963, 1964 that make that a benchmark date. As a result of that, we've seen a gradual and increasing deterioration in this nation. Away from Judeo-Christian values. And I have one example of this that a friend of mine emailed me the other day that comes from the Washington Times. Or the author, at least, is with the writers, with the reporters with the Washington Times. And the uh, dateline is in Denver. And this has to do with a situation in a church. And this is where we're headed. This is what happens when you cut yourself loose from a value system that gives you absolutes, and so this is just sort of a, a warning shot across the bows if you didn't see this one coming. And this involves a situation where you had a lesbian couple that adopted a child, and then after the adoption of the child, some time later, the article doesn't uh, indicate how long it took. The one of the members in that relationship became a believer and then left the relationship because she was a believer and she attended a church well that of course uh, led to a custody battle over the the child and the courts ruled that they were to have the two women were to have joint custody over the adopted uh, the adopted child and the non-christian partner, and had, as part of the custody ruling, the judge insert the, a statement restricting the other partner from including, quote, anything homophobic in the child's religious upbringing or teaching. Now, this woman goes to a conservative evangelical church, and that church has displayed out, as we do here, a track rack. And in that track rack, they have literature from Focus on the Family and Other Christian Groups, that clearly talk about the sinfulness of homosexuality just like any other uh, sexual sin or any other sin. And so now there is a, a as part of this, there's a lawsuit re- keep, to keep this woman from taking the child to church or to any church that has biblical beliefs and the implications of this is that the court is virtually stepping in and dictating what an individual can and can't do in terms of uh, uh, religious thought. so these if they may the, the, our, our freedoms may not have crumbled yet, but they're certainly uh, being eroded and shot at, and the attacks are coming. And as we've seen in numerous cases, numerous situations, Uh, there is an eventual erosion that takes place. So this is just a preview of coming attractions. Now, in light of the fact that this is Thanksgiving and a time to be thankful for what we have in our nation, I have one other piece of current news that focuses our attention on why we should be so thankful for the president that we have at this time. As you know, President Bush had just been in England, and he gave a speech at London's Whitehall Palace on the topic of freedom and religion. And in that address, he said, we Americans sometimes are faulted for a naive faith that liberty can change the world. If that's an error, it began with reading too much John Locke and Adam Smith. Americans have on occasion been called moralists who often speak in terms of right and wrong. That zeal has been inspired by examples on this island, that is, England, by the tireless compassion of Lord Shaftesbury, the righteous courage of Wilberforce, and the firm determination of the Royal Navy over the decades to fight and end the trade in slaves. It's rightly said that Americans are a religious people. That's in part because the good news was translated by Tyndale, preached by Wesley, lived out in the example of William Booth, And it's to this fine heritage, Americans have added a few traits of their own, the good influence of our immigrants and the spirit of the frontier. Well, after he gave his speech, there were a number of negative and hostile letters, open letters to the president published in London's Guardian newspaper, which is a uh, left-wing newspaper. But one of those letters was a letter from well-known famous English novelist Frederick Forsyth. Forsyth writes, Dear President Bush, you will find yourself assailed on every hand by some pretty pretentious characters collectively known as the British left. They traditionally believe they have a monopoly on morality and that your recent actions preclude you from the club. You opposed and destroyed the world's most blood-encrusted dictator. This is quite unforgivable. I beg you to take no notice. The British left intermittently erupts like a pustule upon the buttock of a rather good country. Seventy years ago, it opposed mobilization against Adolf Hitler and worshipped the other genocide, Joseph Stalin. It has marched for Mao, Ho Chi Minh, Khrushchev, Brezhnev, and Andropov. It has slobbered over Kauchescu and Mugabe. It has demonstrated against everything and everyone American for a century. Broadly speaking, it hates your country first and ours second. Eleven years ago, something dreadful happened. Maggie was ousted, Ronald retired, the Berlin Wall fell, and Gorby abolished communism. All the left's idols fell, and its demons retired. For a decade, there was nothing really to hate, but thank the Lord for his limitless mercy Now, they can applaud Sodom, Bin Laden, Kim Jong-il, and hate a God-fearing Texan. Frederick Forsyth. I just loved that. I thought you needed to hear that. So before we begin our study, and before we begin our study, I want you to know, before we pray, just one note there. Notice in Forsyth's letter, he notes that the left thinks that they have a monopoly on morality. Now that fits right into what we're studying on this problem of evil, demonstrating that when you start from a presupposition apart from the Scripture, you don't have any right to say that anything is right or wrong. And as you see, what they end up doing is calling evil good and good evil. And it's just a classic illustration of how atheism always breaks down into a complete distortion of truth and values, and they ultimately have no basis for, for even determining what is right or what is wrong, and we'll get into that in our study this evening. But first we need to pray a few moments of silent prayer, and then I will open in prayer. Let's pray. Uh, Father, we are indeed grateful for all of your many blessings on this nation. And those blessings began in those early years in the 17th century when there were men and women who made the sacrifice to give up so much that was comfortable in their homes in England and make the trip across a, a stormy sea in small ships and much discomfort to establish in a strange primitive land a new home that would be founded upon the principles of freedom of worship and freedom of religious speech, and that you have seen fit over the last 400 years to prosper this nation because of the blessing by association which we still we still enjoy from being associated with that heritage established by our Puritan Scots Presbyterian uh, congregational ancestors because they were men of profound thought, deep intellect, men who thought about the Bible and about how biblical thinking affected every aspect of society. They influenced not only believers, but they influenced many, many others so that there was an environment in this nation in the late 18th century that allowed those men to produce such a phenomenal document of freedom as our Constitution. You have watched over this nation. You have protected us. You have preserved us. It has become a bastion of, of uh, missionary outreach. It has been a a fortress of strength for the Jews and it continues to send forth missionaries and it continues to this day to be a place where there is still, despite the uh, continued erosion of the uh, conservative Bible-believing Christian base, there are still many tens of thousands of Bible-believing Christians in this country and it is due to their influence as well as your sovereign will and plan for this nation, that this nation continues to experience the security, the prosperity that it has. We know that it is not our military, it is not our police forces, it is not our security systems that give us security. It is your sovereign will that we make many mistakes yet you provide for that security. Father, we pray that you would continue to bless this country. You would continue to keep us secure, prevent the terrorists from carrying out their nefarious plans, that you would continue to give uh, steadfast courage to our president to hold fast the course that he has set, and that those in this country would realize that we are engaged in a tremendous global spiritual warfare here between islam and the remnants of christianity in the west that this is not a political battle this is not an economic battle this is not a battle of simple cultural differences but at its root it is a battle between good and evil between truth and falsehood between christianity and the evil influence of Islamic false teaching. Now, Father, we pray for us as a congregation that we might be steadfast because we recognize the principle that as goes the believer, so goes the, the nation. We pray that we might be steadfast in our commitment to the truth of your word. We pray now that we might have a greater appreciation and understanding of this conflict between cosmic thinking, human viewpoint thinking, all of which is irrational Versus biblical thought, your thought. We pray this now in Christ's name, amen. On well, the last two classes, we've been dealing with a topic in our study of Genesis, and that topic is the problem of evil. Why is there suffering today? And as I've said, there's a practical approach to this problem that is one we typically run into when we're Conversing with a friend, family member, co-worker, and that is that. This person hits some horrible situation, some type of suffering, and uh, it may be the death of a child or some horrible natural disaster. Maybe they're victim of some horrendous crime, and they recognize that there is evil in the world. That evil has become personal. It has it has touched them. And so they begin to ask the question, why did God cause this to happen to me? How can God allow this to happen to me? And at some point, they can be asking a legitimate question because they they really want to know. And that happens sometimes. One of the reasons God brings suffering into the lives of people is to get their attention to prepare them for the gospel. And we saw that in the Apostle Paul. There are many other reasons, of course, for suffering, and we've discussed that under the doctrine of suffering. But there are also times when people may not overtly or on the surface appear to be responsive to the truth. You've had conversations with folks like that. They're resistant. They've been exposed to superficial Christianity and emotional Christianity, and they know there's no answer there. And so when they meet you or hear you, their immediate reaction is you're just some other Christian, some other religious idiot. You've got your question. And so at the surface there's a hostility, but yet underneath there's there's still a genuine a positive volition, and a searching for truth. And so that person has to be handled in a slightly different way. Then, in other times, you run into somebody who has created an intellectual wall that they've erected in order to keep away God and to convince themselves there is no God. Sometimes that intellectual wall is deeply set on a foundation of negative volition, and no matter what you say, it's never going to make any difference, and you have to develop the discernment and in witnessing to just let that go. In other cases, you have to realize that even though it may appear to be a, a firmly entrenched wall, that uh, there is a an interest on the other side of that wall. And so in those cases, you have to be bold and courageous, intellectually rigorous, and challenge that individual. See, everybody's different and I don't want to communicate as we talk about some of these different strategies of dealing with uh, opposition, I don't want to communicate that every witnessing situation involves the same approach. Everyone is different. Every time somebody asks the, this question, they're coming from different perspectives and we just have to pray to the Holy, pray to God that the Holy Spirit would give us wisdom and understanding and being able to communicate the truth. So we looked at the way this is normally expressed, especially in its more academic understanding, and that is a question of the attributes of God, the essence of God. If God is good, so the focus is on his goodness, that is his holiness, righteousness, integrity, his justice. If God is good, then He must not be powerful enough to control all the evil, injustice, and suffering in the world, since it continues. See what's embedded in there is a couple of ideas that we're going to take apart in this in our class this evening. Uh, but it's the idea that if God were, that, that it really wouldn't go on this long. Well, how do you know? I mean, there's so much embedded here. There's so much arrogance that is presumptive. Underlying this kind of a statement that uh we'll we'll take it apart a little more on the other side, they may question on the one hand uh, his goodness on the other hand they'll if he is good, then you question his power, his omnipotence if he is powerful enough to stop all of this injustice and suffering, then he must not be good and the assumption again is that we're so uh, well informed and so knowledgeable that That there must not be any overriding, any overriding question, uh, or, or any overriding category of goodness, uh, that would justify allowing sin and suffering, uh, to continue and come to its full fruition. So in summary, the question that we see raised is first of all, how can you claim that God is good, loving, and omnipotent when there's so much disease, destruction, and disaster in the world. That's the approach. A second way the question might be phrased is, why do innocent people suffer the consequences of evil? And here the question may be raised, uh, distinguishing between two types of evil. And the first is a moral evil, and the second is natural evil. Two types of evil. Moral evil involves suffering, pain, uh, disaster that is caused either directly or indirectly by the sinful choices of others. For example, you can have health consequences. You make choices in life related to eating, exercise, smoking, uh, various personal choices that lead to the suffering of various kinds of disease such as cancer, heart problems, adult onset diabetes, other things like that. Power lust and greed have led directly to warfare. For example, we've seen that in the 20th century with Hitler, Stalin, others. Power lust and greed have led directly to war where both the innocent and the guilty suffer and die, people who just want to live their lives, yet they're caught up in the maelstrom of war and they go through untold suffering and misery. Power lust and greed have also led to various Governmental abuses, we think of situations in Ethiopia brought, the famine brought on because of the Marxist socialist policies of the government and uh, other countries where a small group of individuals dominates and controls the wealth and the result is that 98, 99% of the people uh, are uh, mired in famine, disease, and misery. Uh, Further for examples, you can have al- people get involved in alcohol or drug use and that leads to uh, either death of self through an overdose or through uh, deterioration of health, or perhaps they kill others when they're driving under the influence of uh, the drug or alcohol, not to mention destruction of their own marriages, families, and relationships. So that's, that's moral evil, and the question is why do people suffer, innocent people suffer from moral evil? Others would recognize, well, I can understand that, but what about natural evil? Why do innocent people suffer from natural disasters, uh, plagues, um, victims of weather disasters, hurricanes, tornadoes, blizzards, earthquakes, although a certain amount of arrogance and irresponsibility may be involved. You don't want to build your house on the San Andreas Fault Line. You don't want to or you shouldn't build a house on certain beaches in Florida or North Carolina or Galveston, Texas or places like that without recognizing that, that you may suffer the consequences. Well, as we've looked at this whole question of suffering, we've seen that there's two answers. There's human viewpoint answer and the divine viewpoint answer. And the human viewpoint answer may take many different approaches. And these approaches may appear on the surface to be at opposite ends of the spectrum. But what I'm trying to show you and help you think through is that no matter how the, the human viewpoint thinker Resolves the problem, he's always going to end up in the same basic position. And when you're discussing this with somebody or challenging somebody, then you need to learn how to put them, uh, in their place in a nice, humble, uh, way where you just back them into a corner and take their position and with your theological staple gun and nail them to the floor so they can't move and they can't live in their position. One way I looked at this in the last time was just to look at the basic basic system, and I said you can take all your human viewpoint systems, and we went back, we looked at some ancient mythological approaches, we looked at modern Darwinism, various different human viewpoint solutions, and we said that no matter how you do it, you always end up with two factors. Two factors, and the first is that evil in all human viewpoint systems is uncontained, it's unrestricted, unbounded, it is eternal. There's no beginning, there's no end. Now that means something. It means that evil is normal. It means that evil is natural. It means that that evil is uh In fact, evil then, if it's normal, evil ultimately becomes good in Darwinism because it's the means to advancement, the survival of the fittest. And that's in contrast to the divine viewpoint that all evil is controlled and contained. It had a starting point at the Garden of Eden, and it will culminate in judgment where it is dealt with. And there are various judgments that deal with sin, and eventually it is... It is contained restricted and uh, punished and and restricted to the lake of fire. Second, we saw that it affects responsibility and is the root of victimhood it 's not my fault it 's god 's fault it 's a system 's fault i 'm just doing what comes naturally i mean isn 't this the the basic rationale underlying the rise in modern uh, sodomy? And homosexuality, is it's just our genetic structure. It's just natural. That's just the way I was born. Uh, and we're going to see that. Trust me, this uh, recent exposure of pedophilia is nothing compared to what it can be. And there was a time when homosexuality was clearly stated to be an evil. I mean, in law cases in this country, it was considered an evil and it was punishable in the early stages of this nation. It was punishable by death. And where did they get that idea? They got it from the Mosaic Law. So ultimately, when you take a position, certain positions on these moral issues, it always goes back to biblical Christianity versus a non-biblical approach. Well, we looked the last couple of times at this whole subject from one direction, and we saw that these two principles always seem to, to play out. Now, I want to approach it from a slightly different vantage point. I want to look at it in terms of three different uh, ways or three different worldviews that uh, deal with evil. The first of these is the atheist position. The atheist position. And in the atheist position, we have, I've got up on the overhead, basically four propositions in their logical structure. And this is just another way of looking at what I'm trying to do here is show you different ways that this whole problem is structured because if I say you're going to run into it this way and you run into it a little bit differently, you're going to go, how do I answer that? How do I get my mind around this other approach? So I'm trying to look at this in different types of of formats to help you learn how to think in these situations. So an atheist would structure the argument something like this. First of all, proposition one, if God is all-powerful, he could destroy evil. Proposition two, if God is all-good, he will destroy evil. Proposition three, but evil is not destroyed. Proposition four, therefore there is no all-good and all-powerful God. So then the atheist concludes that uh, either God is all-powerful, but he's evil, or he may conclude that God is good, but he's not powerful, but ultimately the atheist concludes that there just isn't any God, and evil exists, but God doesn't. This is the position that evil is eternal. See, so you look at that position, what has the atheist said? The atheist said there is no God, but evil is eternal. So we go right back to our first principle that we derived, and that is that, that evil is eternal, unrestricted, uncontained. And once you do that, you have to go back and think about uh, what he has said in his statement. In that statement, can the atheist even make these propositions? See, think about that. He can, he doesn't even have a right to make those propositions. For example, he is saying that that uh, evil is if evil is eternal. Let's go back to our point. If evil is eternal, then it's normal. And if evil is eternal and normal then what that means is you can't really distinguish between good and evil. Last week I put this chart up on the board where I used this oblong circle to indicate the whole chain of being. The human viewpoint system, all human viewpoint systems go back to this concept of this chain of being where everything is within this one circle. And that means that you don't go outside the circle to get some absolute value of good or bad. It's determined by what's inside that circle. So their concept of good and evil is generated by the creature. So in uh, Christian terminology, we would say that this circle really describes the creation. And in divine viewpoint, we have the creator. Who is distinct from the creation. So they're generating their values from within their own experience, from within the framework of creation itself. And ultimately, if evil is eternal, then that means that, that they, that ultimately any real distinction between good and evil breaks down and their, their position destroys any real substantive meaning for good and evil because they're determined On a relative basis, they're determined almost pragmatically. How do you know this is good and this is evil? It doesn't work for us. That's what our society has determined. That is uh, what our group has determined isn't right for now, but it may be right or wrong for another culture or another group so that it, it becomes fluid. Well, once it becomes fluid, then the meanings of something being good and something being evil are completely destroyed. You can't even communicate anymore. You don't have the right to say this is good and this is bad because, oh, in the 1920s, homosexuality was was bad and marriage and fidelity was good, but now that's changed. So what gives you the right to even use terms that imply absolutes? Uh, so what we see is that in their very discussion, they're borrowing the meaning of good and evil as absolutes from Christianity. You can't let an unbeliever do that. Just, where do you, what do you mean good? Where do you get your concept of good and evil? How can you say that, say that? So that's, that's one approach. So you have to ask the basis for their definition of good and evil. And what you see happening here is something that we can be very guilty of ourselves, and we have to be careful of this, and I pointed this out before, and that is don't develop abstract concepts and then may God conform to those abstract concepts. And what I mean by that is don't come along here and say that I have an absolute concept out here of power. This is what the atheist does. They come along and they say, okay, I've got a definition of what omnipotence is. But what's embedded in their definition of omnipotence is, a, is omnipotence means you will restrict evil in a certain time period. See, that's, that, they don't bring that out. That's, that's in the closet. Then they'll also talk about goodness. But embedded in their definition of goodness is a concept that if you're really good, you, there's no reason that you would allow this kind of suffering to take place. So they develop an abstract category, an abstract value, and then they say, okay, God, if you're God, you have to conform to omnipotence, and goodness. In other words, they're they're approaching God as if there are some, out there somewhere ideals, some sort of yardstick or measuring device that God has to measure up to, and that is an intellectual form of idolatry. And I want to show you a passage where uh, Isaiah deals with this in Isaiah chapter forty. So open your Bibles to Isaiah chapter forty. I would love to take a lot of time to go through Isaiah 40, but we don't have the time to do that, so I just want to hit a couple of verses. This is at a time period when Israel is going, it's actually a prophecy, we've studied this before, it's a prophecy, Isaiah's is writing, uh, some uh, 200 years before the Babylonian captivity, but from chapter 40 on, he's writing as if he's in the captivity to comfort the people while they're living in a pagan environment. And so God is speaking uh, to them, and in verse 12, he says, um, he, he begins to, to challenge them, he says, who has measured the waters in the hollow of his hand, measured heaven with a span, calculated the dust of the earth in a measure? And he's challenging their concept of knowledge that man empirically may be able to estimate certain things. He may be able to estimate the amount of water, but he doesn't have comprehensive knowledge. He can't give you an exact precise measurement because that would mean he would have to have a, a, an infinite database that could handle all that information. And he can't weigh the mountains. He might be able to estimate it, but he can't weigh it. The point of these questions is to show that man's empirical knowledge is finite and limited. And then in verse 13, who has directed the spirit of the Lord or has his counselor has taught him? And in that verse it brings out the idea that God is not taught by anyone. His knowledge is not our knowledge. We learn everything. God never learned anything. He does His knowledge doesn't increase or diminish. God is not taught. No one teaches him. Uh, verse 14, with whom did he take counsel? Who instructed him and taught him in the path of justice? Now notice, who taught God justice? No one did. You see, if you taught God justice, there would be this external ideal of justice that God would conform to. And what Isaiah is saying is God doesn't conform to some external category of justice. What he does is just. That's the measuring rod. God is the measuring rod. Uh, these, you know, when I, we go through the essence box and we talk about the fact that God is sovereign and he's righteous, he's just, he's love, he's eternal, omniscient, omnipotent, omnipresent, uh, veracity and immutability, these are not abstract categories that God measures up to. And because this being measures up to these categories, we then say, okay, he's God. God is who he is and he radiates these categories, and so God is the measuring device. He doesn't meet up to some measuring device, and so we skip down to verse 18. This is the point of of Isaiah's confrontation here. To whom, then, will you liken God, or what likeness will you compare to him? See, there is no nothing external to which you can compare God or to liken God. He is the standard. So when you say, say God is love or say anything about love, you have to start with God because God's actions demonstrate what love is, what it isn't, demonstrates what compassion is. That's why I said last time you don't start with some arbitrary concept of compassion that you picked up from your friends neighbors and family. And you say, okay, well, when somebody's going through a tough time, you just need to go up and give them a hug and, and tell them how much you understand and how you, you feel their pain. What did God do? We saw this last time in, a, in, a Job, in a Job, Job 38 through 40. God verbally slaps Job in the face and says, who do you think you are questioning me? You've gone through all this suffering. But who do you think you are demanding an answer of me? And then he goes through a whole series of questions, much like Isaiah has in this chapter, to get the reader and to get Job to recognize his own limitations. So so the passage says, To whom, then, will you liken God, or what likeness will you compare to him? There is... Nothing to whom you can compare God. And if you set something up as a, as a, that comparison that you're going to use to, to understand God, then what you're doing is setting that intellectually above God, and that then becomes an intellectual idol. This is a very sophisticated concept of idolatry. It's mental idolatry. And what it is, is man, in his independence from God, wants to define God on the basis of values and categories that are generated by the creature. It's a complete breakdown of that creator-creature distinction where the creature wants to define the creator, and the creature is going to generate his own categories, his own values, his own definitions, and then say, God, if you're just or righteous, then you got to do this. In other words, you've got to dance to my tune. I'm not under your sovereignty, and I'm not under your control. So the thing that we have to recognize is how do you know what God is? How can you even define what omnipotence is? How can you as an unbeliever define what goodness is? How do you know? How can you even speak about these things? How can you uh, sit in judgment to what will you like in God? And again, in the Isaiah 40 passage, Isaiah brings this out a second time in verse 25. In, in the, from the mouth of the Lord, to whom then will you liken me, says the Lord, or to whom shall I be equal? You see, there is no point of analogy. God is incomprehensible, and He is above us. He, we can understand Him, we can know Him to some degree, but not, we cannot have comprehensive knowledge. So the atheist concludes that if God exists, He is not all-powerful. So therefore, since evil exists, God must not exist. Or, in some cases, the atheist would conclude that if God exists, he's not all-powerful, and that really leads to what is the third position we'll look at here. Now, the other hidden assumption, which undergirds almost all human viewpoint reasoning on this topic, is that if God wanted to destroy evil, it would have been destroyed by now. Well, How do you know? How do you know there's not some higher purpose? Well, I can't conceive of one, so in your limited empirical knowledge, you know enough to know that there can't exist anywhere at any time a higher good that is being accomplished, uh, by God's extension of, of evil and allowing evil to run its course In the universe. So we have to watch out that, that there are hidden assumptions in each of these points and we need to make sure they're understood. And so the assumption that, that is there is that God would destroy evil if he could. So that presupposes an omniscience about evil and the purposes of the universe on the part of the creature that is, cannot be derived from either empiricism or rationalism. He's just Assuming that. Now the Christian has an answer to this that's been formulated. Okay, this is, I mislabeled this slide. That's, this is not the atheist position. This is the Christian position. Point number one, if God is all good, and He is, then He will destroy evil. This is the Christian position because we understand what good is. He will destroy evil. Second, if God is all-powerful, then he can destroy evil. He has the ability to destroy evil at any point in time. Third, observation, evil is not yet destroyed. Therefore, evil will be destroyed eventually. And this is the position that I have noted in the previous two classes, that evil in the biblical worldview is... Is limited. It will be destroyed. Because the Christian position recognizes that there's a plan and a purpose to history and there is a reason. We don't have to understand it fully for there still to be a reason. Just because it's incomprehensible doesn't mean it's unknowable. Just because it's incomprehensible, it doesn't mean that it's irrational. God is rational. He's omniscient. He's rational. He has a plan. He has a purpose. But as we saw with Job, he doesn't have to. He is not required to let the creature know all the information. See, that's the arrogance of the human viewpoint position. Is they're basically saying that either I have enough knowledge or I ought to have enough knowledge. Well, that was Job's position. In Job, I need to have an answer to the question. God said, No, you don't. I've given you enough information for you to trust me, but I don't have to give you enough information for you to judge me. See, that's the that's what happened in the garden, is Eve is sitting there with the serpent, and the serpent says, did God say? Is that true? And, and so Eve is sitting there thinking, well, is it true or not? See, what she's done, she got caught into the, the snare of the serpent's thinking, and she has set up this category, true, as an abstract category above God, and now she's trying to evaluate God to see if what he said was true. Instead of the fact, well, God said it, it's true. Now, she's saying, well, oh, is it true? She's immediately caught into that trap of setting aside abstract categories as if they are over and above God. Now, the second, that's the atheist position. Once again, it boils down to, to the fact that it blurs the distinction between good and evil. And whenever you blur the distinction of good and evil, I pointed out last time, you're going to trivialize evil. No unbeliever thinks evil is as evil as a Christian thinks. He can't comprehend that. He's going to talk about all kinds of things being bad or wrong, but he can't live with the reality of evil being as comprehensive and as devastating as the Bible presents evil. So in pantheism, you have the view that God exists, but evil doesn't. See, the pantheist goes, takes it to the fullest extent, say, it's just illusion. This is the Hindu position that is called Maya. It's just, just illusion. Or in America, this came up in Christian science. Incidentally, when Mayor, Mary Baker Glover Patterson Eddy was an, uh, in her later years, she had serious tooth problems, and so she had to take opium for her to dull the pain. Well, uh, wait a minute. Mrs. Eddie, I didn't think there was any pain. It's just illusion. Just, just get your mind over and above that. So this is this is one approach to evil that you find in human viewpoint. That is, it really doesn't exist. It's just illusion. It's the idea that you see a coil of rope and you think it's a snake. But when you get close enough to look at it, you realize you were mistaken. It really isn't a snake. It's a coil of rope. So you think it's pain. You think it's suffering. You think it's evil. But it really isn't. When we really understand things the way they are, we'll realize it was just an illusion. So ultimately what we have to do in a discussion with with someone who holds this position is point out the ultimate irrationality of their position. They can't can't live with that position consistently on a day-to-day basis. For example, to accept that position, that it's just evil, that pain is just an illusion, they have to deny the data of empiricism. In other words, whatever we know or learn from, from our senses, from sight, hearing, taste, touch, smell, it, it's not really true, it's just an illusion. Well, if evil is an illusion, good is an illusion, See, you can't have it both ways. You can't say good is good, but then evil's an illusion. So if evil is an illusion, then everything is an illusion. You have to uh, ask the question, how do you determine that good isn't an illusion as well? Well, maybe maybe you're really deceived, and it isn't that good's the illusion it isn't that, that good is the reality and evil is the illusion, but, but good is the illusion. And evil is the reality. Now, have you ever thought about that? So, in in pantheism, they they have to not only deny that empiricism, they have to ultimately deny that empiricism can provide any factual, reliable data uh, whatsoever. That means they can't walk. They can't cook. They can't do anything. Anytime anytime they move, breathe, or anything, they are in uh, contradiction to their basic presuppositions. Second, it would deny all scientific data in relation to disease and historical disaster. You know, this hurricane that just happened down, what, a couple of months ago that came up the East Coast. I can't remember what it was called, but it didn't happen. Those fires in California did not happen. Those houses did not burn up. Those people are not suffering. Nobody died. It all, that's where the position leads to is denying all empirical data. And it denies, of course, the biblical data about the reality of sin and evil. Now, this is also important. I'll reference it in a minute before we wrap up. This is one way the unbeliever copes with evil. See, in the first position, the atheist has to cope with evil by ultimately reducing its significance by making it normal because he can't handle evil in all of its biblical reality, the escapist of pantheist, which is really escapism, can't deal with evil either, so it doesn't really exist. He's just living in a state of psychological denial. And this, again, shows that in all unbelieving positions, you either trivialize evil or you act as if it doesn't exist. Those are, your, those are your only options. Now, a third position that's been popularized a little bit the last few years due to a work written by a rabbi named Harold Kushner, who you'll see interviewed every now and then on Larry King or some other talk show, wrote a book when, back in the late 80s, I believe, When Bad Things happen to Good People. And trying to answer the question, why do bad things happen? He says because God's lost control, and so his solution is God's just not omnipotent; He's not very powerful. Again, you have to ask the question. Okay, Rabbi Kushner, what do you mean by bad? And what do you mean by good? And where do you get your categories? And where do you get your definitions? So what we see again is the same basic fallacies that you have in the other position is a creaturely imposed definition on the creator. This is what good is, and God, you've got to meet my idea of good. So it's once again the creature trying to dictate to the creator. But we have to realize as Christians we must always start with God and not with human reason or experience. Revelation always precedes Experience. You go to the scripture to find out who God is, and you start with God's revelation of himself, and that is what sets the standards, and then you come along and utilize those standards. But God himself is a standard. So uh, one of the classic examples that you run into with people is this four-letter word, fair. God is fair. What do you mean by fair? Where do you get your definition of fairness? whats it a 20th century American fairness? 19th century American fairness. 16th century Swiss fairness. What is fairness anyway? Where do you get your ideas? What's the content of that word fair? So God is fair. So fair is isolated into an abstract category, and God has to meet that category. Well, God wouldn't let that happen because God's fair. Well, who's, who, who sets the standard? So we, this is a radically different way of thinking about God because we've all fallen into that trap. It's a heritage from our Aristotelian, Platonic, Greek heritage in Western civilization to think in terms of these categorical values as autonomous, abstract ideals. Okay. Now, to wrap up this morning, this whole argument, this whole study, I want to look at how the Christian actually copes with these things. First, a couple other points. That, uh, variations on a theme already that we've seen is that, that the non-Christian is going to raise this whole question in a number of different ways, one of which is he'll say, how can a good and omnipotent God allow evil? And an illustration they'll use is that if you saw someone down and out, And suffering in the street. You would help them, wouldn't you? You would have compassion on them. You wouldn't just leave them there in the gutter, would you? Of course, I would say, yeah. I'll leave them in the gutter. I'm not going to think, I don't want them to think that somehow they on their own power can change their circumstances. They're in the gutter because they've rejected God. They're living, you know, they're, they're reaping the consequences of their own bad decisions. So leave them there in the gutter. I don't want to come up with some sort of solution for their Sin making them think that somehow they can live and have happiness and meaning and value in life apart from God. I'll give them the gospel. I'll talk to them things of that nature, which was the foundation of true, genuine Christian compassion. Soup kitchens, kitchens um, uh, missions that operated down in the um, uh, slum areas, but they always gave the gospel with the food. They gave truth with uh, the the various physical things to help alleviate to some degree the suffering of those in the street. But the illustration is if you saw someone down and out, you'd help them, wouldn't you? Well, how can God sit back and look at the whole human race and all kinds of wars and everything and not help us? He must not care. But see, once again, what happens is they're importing or exporting to God their own value system. Furthermore, they don't understand the nature of freedom. Freedom of choice means freedom to succeed and freedom to fail. For there to be true freedom, you have to have freedom to fail. To have love, and God creates man to love him, to have genuine love, it is marked by obedience. We see that again and again in the New Testament. If you love me, you will what? You will keep my commandments. So obedience is linked to love love is not just some feeling some uh, empty sentimentalism so for there to be genuine love there has to be genuine freedom and for there to be genuine freedom there has to there will be a freedom to fail and freedom to succeed now real freedom in choices means that the more significant the choice the more radical the consequences if you have a choice between drinking Let's use a real trivial, prosaic example. If you have the choice between drinking regular Coca-Cola for the rest of your life and Diet Coke, there are going to be certain consequences. You're probably going to weigh a little more in 30 years than you would otherwise. But that's still a rather trivial example, and it's a trivial choice. But if you have a choice between worshiping God and not, obeying God and not, then the consequences are radical. And this is what I've tried to point out in our study of the curse in Genesis 3, and that is that the consequences of man's negative volition are quite, quite radical. Therefore, we have to come to grips with the true dimensions of suffering, disease, and evil, and that, the, that all of that came into the whole cosmic system as a result of disobedience to the Creator. Second approach that people will raise in this is, what, what about the innocents? What about the little babies? Everybody wants to trot out a baby. Uh, what about birth defects, natural disasters? Once again, the question betrays a shallow and superficial view of evil. What we see in Scripture is that evil is something that was like a poison that penetrated every dimension of the universe. And that's the way God constructed reality. Not that God's the cause of that, but because reality couldn't be any other way, he's demonstrating that that the creature cannot survive at all independently of the Creator because his negative decisions affect everything. Not just the immediate situation. Sometimes people will say as sort of a third approach to this is that, well, why did God have to, have to, have to visit that curse on the animals and on the natural world? And actually what we see here is, is more of a consequence. Just very briefly, we don't have time in the, as I'm wrapping up here. ...to go into the passage, but the word curse... ...see, when we think of God cursing man... ...we often talk of it that way in Genesis 3... ...it doesn't say that in Genesis 3... ...we talk about Genesis three fourteen and following is the curse... ...but the word curse itself is only used two times... ...it's used in verse 14 and verse 17... ...and in both times it's used in the passive... ...the serpent is cursed... ...so the serpent receives the action of cursing... ...but who performs the action... In verse 17, the ground is cursed, but, but the ground receives the action. Who performs the action? See, some might think, well, God performed the action, but but the judgment of sin was death, spiritual death, separation of the creature. It is not, you really have two options. Either God directly causes the negative consequences, which then again would make him the direct author of evil and calamity, or evil itself is constitutionally structured in such a way that the simple act of eating a piece of fruit in disobedience to God would change the structure of the universe. And see, that's what the Bible is saying. It is not that God caused the earth to be different. What caused the earth to be different was Adam's choice. Evil changed reality. It permeated everything. That means the believer has a profound understanding of what evil is, much more profound, much more real than what the unbeliever has, but that allows us then to also deal with it in its reality. So when the unbeliever comes to evil, he has three options in terms of coping. First of all, to deny the reality of evil. This is done a couple of different ways. One is the irrational approach that we looked at earlier. It just doesn't exist. It's just, uh, uh, illusion or the Hindu Maya. It's just imagination. There is no real evil. And we saw the problems to that. Another way that people try to deal with the reality of evil, and this, this plays out in personal life. Apparently, Mayor, Mary Baker, Baker Glover Patterson Eddy, had a lot of uh, unhappiness in her early life, so she was trying to escape personal suffering. See, a lot of this sounds so heavy, it sounds so abstract, so philosophical, but you come right down to where people are living. I've got problems, I've got a miserable life. How can I cope? How can I live in my misery? Well, I can just deny it's not real. Or the second option is that we just come up with saying good and evil are only conventions of language or culture. I can't really deal with the fact that I have certain proclivities in my nature and temptation. It's so much easier to just say this is really okay. I'm really miserable if what I'm doing is a sin and it's wrong. Now I have a struggle and a fight. But if I can say, no, it's not really wrong, then I'm done away with that struggle and fight. So good and evil then become, in uh, human viewpoint, become merely conventions of language or culture, and that makes it fluid, and good becomes evil and evil good. That's real, pure relativism. The second major solution that you see in modern thought is the existential leap into the absurd that's a capital a and and existential discourse because they can't they know evil exists but they can't explain it there is no god so somehow the only way i can really survive suffering and misery is i have to give it some meaning and if you read the existentialist they can't get meaning from god they can't get meaning from some external absolute. They can only give it from their own, uh, assign it from their own thinking. They generate the meaning. So in, in real existentialism, it, it's no different. There really is no ultimate moral difference between pushing a woman in front of a car and helping her across the street. As long as you do something to validate your existence, and it, you know, you just live in life. It's the absurd. And so we just have to if, we, there's going to, if I'm going to survive, I'm just going to give it my own uh, meaning. So I assign meaning. I define everything. Third coping strategy is the one that we find so dominant today is escapism, or let's just anesthetize the pain. See, they know there's evil there, but they have no solution to it whatsoever. This is, that's why it's coping. All the unbeliever can do is cope. Just manage the stress. But the believer has a solution. But all the unbeliever can do is escape. He can go into all kinds of psychological coping mechanisms. He can go into various stages of denial, and etc., which we'll get into here. But the most popular in our society are drugs and alcohol. That's why drugs are on the rise, and they have been ever since, ever since the 60s. You take God completely out of the equation, then you're left living a really miserable life. You may be an existentialist leaping into the absurd, but that leap of faith is cushioned by LSD or marijuana or cocaine or crack or whatever, whatever it is or alcohol, whatever your drug of choice is. You just anesthetize the pain. You can't deal with it. You have no concept of how to deal with it. Or you get involved in just pleasure, sex, pornography, rapidly on the increase. Just incredible what the Internet has done for pornography today and how that has revolutionized this country. And we have yet to see the impact of that on marriages and family. We're just seeing the, the tip of the iceberg. Uh, music and entertainment. Let's just get submerge ourselves. And Oh, look at that on the list, sex, drugs, and rock and roll. That's it. That takes care of everything uh just immerse myself in this so that i don't have to face reality as it as it is or relationships social activity social engagements gets our work you you just immerse yourself in work so that you never have time to really think about your spiritual condition or or reality all kinds of escapism is available today, escapist television, uh, escapist vacations. Not that any of these vacations or some of these things are in and of themselves necessarily wrong, but they are used to to avoid dealing with reality. And then, of course, all of your psychological problems, your neuroses and psychoses, all are various forms that people adopt from the earliest ages to deal with whatever pain they perceive in their life. In contrast, one quote I have here from Sir Arthur Keith, I quoted him last week. He was a British writer right after World War II, and he was writing in support of Darwinistic ethics. And I quoted him last time saying that Hitler was just the finest example of Darwinistic ethics. And about Christianity, he says, quote, "...Christian ethics are out of harmony with human nature and are secretly antagonistic to nature's scheme of evolution." You see where where the unbeliever goes is he has to basically say that good and evil are just figments of our imagination. We can't even talk about it. Now, the believer can handle problems. He can solve problems. We call them stress busters. And it's the Christian answer. It's not just coping. And we've looked at these. And the basic... Problem-solving devices handle evil in your own life. Confession of sin. You deal with the sin. It's dealt with at the cross. There is forgiveness. It's real. You don't have to go through psychological guilt. You don't have to beat yourself up in, in self-flagellation. You just confess your sins, and you can move forward. You, you stay in fellowship through the filling of the Spirit and walking by means of the Spirit. In faith-rest drill, you understand the truth of Scripture, and you trust it. I'm going to talk about that briefly. Grace orientation. We understand God's manifold grace in the midst of evil. It's not as bad as it could be. See, the assumption of, the hidden assumption in so many of those human viewpoint arguments is, if God were really good, He would be controlling evil. Well, who says He's not? Now, who says it wouldn't be 10 billion times worse if God weren't controlling? It? How do you know He's not limiting evil? So you have grace, you have common grace, we have saving grace, we have uh, uh, logistical grace, and doctrinal orientation. So we've got three basic skills that interrelate here. Our faith rest drill, doctrinal orientation, and grace orientation. And they work together in a cycle. See, in the faith rest drill, we're going to trust God. It's not faith in faith. See, that's that, that's that sort of neurotic, uh, rejection of, of evil. I'm just going to believe that somehow it's all going to work out. That's just stepping off into fairy tale land. But the faith rest drill latches onto a specific promise of God in the faith rest drill and trusts God going to passages like Isaiah 40, uh, 40, 40, 31, 4, Isaiah 41, 10, other passages. So the faith rest drill functions in conjunction with doctrinal orientation. And doctrinal orientation functions in conjunction with grace orientation. That's why in that growth process we go through this cycle of faith rest drill. Well, what do you believe? You believe doctrine, you believe the truth. So you can't have the faith rest drill without some doctrinal orientation. You can't have doctrinal orientation without grace orientation. When we have grace orientation, we understand how much God has done for us and then we can we can trust him. You see, the ultimate answer for the believer is is really found in Second Peter three nine. It says the Lord is not slow about his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing for any to perish, but for all to come to repentance. See, the unbeliever says if God were good, he would stop it. Well, if he stops it, There's no more repentance, there's no more salvation, there's no more resolution, it's all over with. So God is extending history and suffering and misery and pain because the longer it goes, the more people are saved. And there's a higher good, and that higher good goes completely past the unbeliever in his limited, arrogant, self-absorbed concept of the universe. Okay, that wraps up our study on the problem of evil, showing once again that in Genesis, embedded in these first three chapters, you have every single issue. All the important issues are laid out before us. Sin, salvation, uh, God, man, nature, sin, salvation, God's solution to every problem. If you don't start with Genesis 1 through 3, My point is you cannot start. You do not have a foundation for thought because thought itself is grounded in the assumption that Genesis 1 through 3 is true, that reality is what it is because God made it that way. And so next time we'll have one more topic derived from these first three chapters of Genesis and then we'll move on. With our heads bowed and our eyes closed. Father, we thank you for this opportunity to study your word, uh, this evening, to come to a greater understanding of your grace, your goodness, and your working out in history the plan of salvation. That it couldn't be resolved instantly because it was much more complex than that. It actually took 4,000 years to prepare the human race for a savior, and then it's taken at least another 2,000 years to prepare the world for his return that in that time you are bringing to completion everything necessary in order to completely do away with evil. It is not a simple thing as most unbelievers think. Father, we pray that you would help us to understand the things that we have studied tonight, that we can use them as we interact with friends and family who are unbelievers over the holidays, that you would give us an opportunity to use some of the things that we've learned. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.